Well, uh, open your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We are in a, the fifth uh, week, the fifth Sunday of seven-week series uh, that uh, we've entitled uh, Seven Dimensions of a Spirit-Filled Believer. We've kind of been marching through the, the seven dimensions, and today we're on the subject of worship. Now, worship is something that we come to church to do often. And uh, we think that's a great thing. Um, but we want to talk a little bit more about worship uh, today. And uh, with this uh, setting that Jesus is being pictured at here in John chapter 4 is in a Samaritan village. And if you know the story, you know he's outside at the, at the city well where they come to get water. And he's sitting there talking to a Samaritan woman. They get into a discussion. The woman brings up the subject of worship. And being a Samaritan, they have differences with the Jews. And she's asking Jesus. Uh, she says, we Samaritans, we worship here on this mountain. But the Jews say the place of worship is Jerusalem. Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus' response to that question is, is this in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And he answers the woman. He says, but the hour is coming and now is. So he's, he's announcing that this hour is fulfilled. From this point on, it will be different. And uh, Jesus goes on to say, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So here is a change that Jesus is announcing. Uh, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You know, worship is something that uh, we can easily take for granted. I mean, you know, we come to church and we worship or, you know, I, I hear people all the time, oh, I live, listen to worship music at home or in my car or whatever the, the place is. And uh, we just, you know, like the idea of worship. You know, I think it's an important idea to sometimes just call out the things that we sometimes take for granted and, and explain those things to ourselves. So if you were talking to you, okay, and uh, that you asked you the question, so what is worship? What, what, what does worship mean? What is worship all about? Um, would you have a, a good defined answer for that? And there's probably more than one. It's not like you have to get just the right thing to have a correct answer about worship, but I think it's important for us who, you know, come to worship, participate in worship, what are we doing when we are worshiping? And I think one of the answers, among many, is that in worship, either by posture or by uh, expression, either in word or, you know, something that we do, we are acknowledging the greatness of the God that we worship, okay? Um, now, if you watched Gunsmoke uh, growing up as a kid, that really dates us. There's some people who go, Gunsmoke, what are you talking about here, right? Um, but when you saw Marshall Dillon, you know, the sheriff draw down on somebody and they did this, what is this a sign of? Surrender. And what does surrender acknowledge? The, the surrender acknowledges that you are greater, I am lesser. 
So Marshall Dillon was greater in the sense that he had the peacemaker uh, there to enforce the law, and he was the greater, in the, and the lawbreaker was the lesser. Well, what are the postures of worship? As you know, maybe you did it this morning. Uh, you, you lift your hands uh, to the Lord. And what is that a sign of? It's surrender. And what is that saying? Is that you are greater, I am lesser. And in, I think that's one of the key concepts in worship. Uh, because what does the, the Bible tell us in the opening chapters of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, that God created man in whose image? In his image. He's the creator, we are the created. That makes him greater than us. He created us in his image. But you know, you know the, the struggle of the centuries, and, and even uh, Satan, uh, who fell from heaven, is that he tried to turn that around. He wanted to be greater than the creator. I am greater, you are lesser. And man has struggled with that forever. In, in other words, we want to create God in our image. You know, that's what's happening so much in the world today. You know, the Bible's pretty uh, black and white about certain things. You know, you got Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, do, you know, this, thou shalt not that. And, uh, and it's pretty uh, cut and dry. There's not really much argument about the, what the Bible has to say about certain things. And yet, we want to change those things. We want to say, you know what, I, we don't like that. We want to change it to something I like, something that I want. And, and in that is the struggle where man is trying to create God in his image instead of accepting the fact that we are created in the image of God. And worship helps us come to the place where we acknowledge once again, because, you know, we can get carried away in, in our thoughts and we think, you know what, I... I I don't want to obey rules. I want to do what I want to do. And, uh, and every time we do that, we are, we are putting ourselves uh, in the place where we're saying to God, I am greater than you are. And worship just brings us all back to center and helps us understand, even in posture, that, Lord, I surrender to you because you are greater and I am lesser. And that's really, I think, one of the uh, the the foundational thoughts about what worship is all about. We don't worship ourselves, we worship the Father. And, and Jesus is announcing this uh, to the woman at the well. And, and uh, you know, one of the very, very important things about uh, keeping, you know, the proper perspective and truth in worship is that we must know the Word of God. We'll say a little bit more about this in a moment here, but you know, the wonder of worship is a beautiful distinction of the Christian faith. The Christian faith worships like, like no other faith. You know, in, in other faith systems, worship is sometimes a, a prescribed ritual uh, that you perform over and over and over again. Um, one that uh, is entered either out of fear of retribution by religious authorities. So like if you don't participate in worship, uh, you get hunted down and persecuted. Uh, for not participating. Um, so uh, worship, if you want to call it that, in those situations is a forced act on, on the people's part. Or uh, they can enter into it for fear of the God that is being worshipped will retaliate against them if they do not. Christian worship is nothing like those other systems. You know, with Christian worship, for us, it's uh, not just a posture to... Uh, attain or recited formula or even out of fear, 
but it is an extension of our own heart to connect with the heart of God. And the spirit-filled believer uh, does this on a regular basis. In fact, you don't have to wait till Sunday to do that. You know, it's just something that we can do any place, anytime. As Jesus announced, we no longer, you know, worship God just on this mountain or just in Jerusalem, but wherever we are, we worship him in spirit and in truth. And uh, certainly, you know, when we come together in the house of God on Sunday, you know, one of the things about worshiping at church is this is largely one of the few times in the week that we get to worship corporately. We can worship individually anytime, anywhere. Um, but on Sunday, as we gather in the house of the Lord, we worship in a corporate sense. And it's a, and it's a wonderful experience. One of the things I look forward to in coming to church, I want to worship with uh, all of my Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it's a, it's a time where we acknowledge God's greatness, our lesser status than his, and keep that perspective straight in our mind. But as well, we get to uh, worship him with the overflow of what our heart uh, longs to uh, ascribe to him. Um, one of the interesting pictures of Scripture, there's a couple that, that I kind of marvel every time I read through my Bible and I come upon these Scriptures. I just kind of think about this. And, and uh, Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs and uh, one of the people named in Hebrews 11, the chapter that outlines so many uh, outstanding examples of faith. Well, in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews refers to Jacob uh, who blessed the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and gave his patriarchal blessing over them. And uh, it was right at the end of his life. Uh, he was passing, he was, he was fading, and Joseph is summoned. He brings his two sons, and, and Jacob passes on this blessing. And here the writer of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, verse 21, gives us a little picture here of Jacob. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. <laughs> I think that's, a, that's an interesting picture. Here in the, in the fading moments of his life, his strength is, is ebbing away. But he takes that time leaning on his staff and, and worships the God of heaven, the God who has, has guided him through his life and brought him to this place where, where now uh, his uh, uh, descendants are going to be more numerous than the sand on the seashore and stars in the heavens, all those promises that God made to him. And so here he is in the final moments of his life, leaning on his staff, worshiping, worshiping the God that you and I also worship. You know, Worship can happen in times of joy. You know, that's kind of the emphasis most times when we gather in the house of the Lord is the emphasis is on joy, the joy of our salvation, the joy of our, of our uh, appreciation, love of God for providing for us or having relationship or the forgiveness of our sin. You know, just so many wonderful, happy things to worship. And, and I think that's a, that's a distinction, especially in Christian worship. Some of the emphasis is on the, on the joy of our... Uh, experience in in worship but also it can worship can be a time where in grief we can worship God we can we can uh, worship in public uh, and private moments as well the other picture in scripture of worship that that marvels me 
uh, is in the book of Job, and it's in the first chapter. And, and in the first chapter, we're introduced to Job, and he is, he is the wealthiest man of his time and his generation and, and highly respected and, and uh, has great integrity and all these things. And as you know the story of Job, in one day, everything that he had, his family, his possessions, uh, even his home, was taken from him. It was destroyed. It was stolen. Uh, lives were lost uh, that uh, were family members of Job. And I, you know, I, I think about that you know, in my own context. What would it mean? What would it feel like you know, if everything that we have, you know, at 63 years of age, everything I've been able to accumulate and, and uh, you know, call you know, mine uh, and all that, what if it was all taken away in one day? What would my response be? Well, this is Job's response, and in that incredible grief when he's told his family is, has died um, and all of his possessions have gone away, this is Job's response in, in uh, Job 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. What an incredible response. Response to this terrible thing that has happened to him. He falls to the ground and he worshiped. And this is what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. It's all yours, Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that a powerful picture or what? You know, to acknowledge that God is the author of all all things. He is greater than I am. It all belongs to him. And whether he has given it or whether he has taken it away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Powerful picture for us. You know, uh, worship can, you know, like I said, be in times of joy, uh, times of grief. It can also be expressed in our work. That what we do for a living is worship unto God. And, and uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian believers in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verses 5 through 7. Here's his instruction to bond servants. Now, bond servants were a uh, type of slave, but not the, in the uh, sense that we often think of slaves. Bond servants were those who volunteered to be servants for, if you will, livelihood, room and board. Uh, uh, you know, when they signed on with, you know, someone to be their bond servant, it was a voluntary act, and, uh, and that they would perform service uh, for that master until the, either the year of Jubilee or they were released. Um, so Paul's instruction to these bond servants, he says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So that the person who you are bondservant and, and obligated to, contracted to, um, be obedient to them with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart. And here's the key part, as to Christ. So if Jesus was the one that you are uh, contracted to, um, work as if you're serving Christ. Not with just eye service, don't just be busy when they're watching, or as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. So worship is an extension 
of what we do with our lives, with our, the livelihood that, that we uh, take up in order to you know, live, but we do it as unto the Lord and not unto uh, men. So we, we work with the, with the kind of energy and vigor that, that uh, we would as if it was Jesus himself we were contracted to. So worship can become this extension of who we are and appreciation for what we have been giving. So as Jesus declares in our opening text, John chapter 4, that uh, the hour is coming and now is, he's announcing a big change. The worship is not going to be prescribed to specific places and specific rituals, but worship is going to be expanded far beyond that. And uh, it's not location-specific or even ritual-specific, but whenever, wherever we worship, it is to be done in spirit and in truth. Worship, I think, you know, is something that's easy to take for granted. And, and uh, you know, at times maybe we come to church and, and we go through all the motions, you know, we sing the songs, or maybe our mind is somewhere else, or, uh, you know, but we come to church and it's just part of what we do. It just becomes part of the routine. And, and uh, you know, that's just kind of a human condition. Anything we, we repeat and do over and over again, it just kind of can take that sort of status, unless we specifically kind of stop ourselves and, and uh, say, you know what, uh, this is something, I'm not going to just kind of float through this part of the service. Um, I am, you know, uh, going to participate this in spirit and in truth. You know, we can come to uh, church and we can hear a sermon, you know, we can participate in the, in the you know, singing and, and worship service and prayer and, uh, you know, kind of be part of that and never really worship at all. Do you understand that? Why? Because it's a hard issue. And it's not just, you know, a matter of truth, uh, following, you know, the rules or, you know, what's prescribed as worship, but also it being part of who we are and uh, in going as, as deep as uh, it can in our, um, in our personal lives. Jesus warned the religious leaders of the day of the danger of this kind of worship where we just kind of go with the flow, it doesn't really mean anything, it's just part of the ritual that uh, we get used to. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus' uh, strong rebuke here to these religious leaders, he says, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's, that's if you will, the heart of the issue. Their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And we pray that we never get caught in that kind of uh, posture before the Lord, is that we make worship something vital and real that comes right out of our own heart, out of our spirit. So worship is really a hard issue, and a spirit-filled disciple is a worshiper. It's not something that's optional for us. Um, you know, as we said, we can worship in a variety of ways. Often what we call worship in churches is, is music-led, uh, uh, but that's not where it, it begins or ends. Uh, we, worship encompasses all of our life. As I said, you know, worship is even in our work, in our daily work, 
which we do. So let's talk about how spirit-filled disciple worships in spirit and truth. So, so this dual uh, sense of understanding. Uh, what allows us to move from a rational and information-based kind of worship. Now, now, what keeps us on track in worship? How come, you know, we, we don't get, you know, off in the weeds somewhere uh, in our worship? Or, you know, we begin to change the nature of the God who's revealed in Scripture into things that we would maybe more prefer at the moment and kind of get off track in, in this whole idea of worshiping God in truth. Now, truth is important, and our manual for that, uh, for truth, is always the Word of God. It's always Scripture. It's, that's always what keeps us on track, and as we follow Scripture, that leads us in truth. So when Jesus said, you know, that true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, truth is the Word of God, which keeps us on track. We understand the nature of God. We, we understand just uh, as much as we can uh, um, process in our minds uh, the nature of God and, and worship Him in that understanding. You know, that's how we understand that He is greater and we are lesser. And uh, that puts us in the proper perspective of what worship is all about. Where does that come from? It comes right from the Word of God. And so the, the more that we know about Scripture, the more that we can worship in truth. Now that's important. But how many know even truth sometimes can get a little bit dry, Right? Sometimes uh, when you're reading through Leviticus, does it ever get a little bit dry? It's all truth, right? <laughs> it's all inspired, but sometimes it's a little, it's a little hard, and uh, we just kind of soldier through it. But, you know, when we introduce the whole idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth, uh, things take a whole different uh, dimension. So what allows us to move from just a rational, information-based kind of worship, based on Scripture, to, let me suggest this, a deeper, emotional, spiritual level of worship uh, that is achieved when we worship with the Spirit of God, which is also based on that same truth. This is the instruction of Scripture, and this is where Paul is writing the uh, Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15, he comes to a conclusion after teaching on the, on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's nine gifts of the Spirit uh, from, you know, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, uh, gifts of healing. Uh, all of, you know, and more are incorporated in the, in the gifts of the Spirit. And they each have a, a purpose. They each cover an area of our lives. And among those nine gifts is the gift of tongues. Now, what is the purpose of tongues? I'll, I'll give you a clue here. It is not to give a message in tongues in church. That's not the purpose of tongues. The, the purpose of tongues is to worship, okay? Tongues are the prayer and the worship gift. And uh, we can look here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 15. He comes to the conclusion of what he's been talking about. Here is, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. So he says, some things we're going to pray right out of Scripture. This is truth. This is my understanding. But sometimes we're going to pray those very same things in the Spirit. And the two are, are uh, different. And then he goes on. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. So it is a, a, a dual um, 
application, if you want to say spirit and in truth, sing with the spirit and sing with the understanding, I believe that's, that's uh, how those two come together. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 also says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now you can just underline that phrase. I think that is a great phrase and in my Bible it's underlined. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. What does that mean? How do we let the word of God dwell in us richly? You know, when you have a command of scripture, you know, that's why we encourage you often to read your Bibles, right? And uh, Bible reading guides. In fact, I think right now is a good time for a commercial, right? Um, <laughs> you know, we encourage you to read your Bible. If you aren't reading your Bible frequently, let me encourage you to do so. And one of the things that will help you is a little Bible reading guide. And uh, Bible reading guide has... Uh, 365, where does that number sound familiar? Hmm. 365 portions of scripture for us to read. And if we read one a day, you can read through your Bible in one year. And if you can read, you know, one portion in about 20, 25 minutes, uh, you know, a day, then uh, you, you will be able to get from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation in your Bible in one year. We encourage you to do that. And then when you, when you achieve that, and whether it's one year or two years or three years, there are no Bible reading police here, okay? Nobody's going to knock on your door and say, you missed a day, right? Um, no, it, you know, life happens, and sometimes we even just plain forget. And uh, the great thing is we don't get uh, voted off the island, uh, when, uh, you know, that happens. But what we do, that's why the Bible reading guide is so important. We just come back to the Bible reading guide, we find where we left off, and we proceed and go forward. And, and that, what that creates, you know, by the time we get done with that, what do we do? We just start over and, and read through the Bible again. And the idea is not to, you know, make notches in your Bible cover how many times you've, you've uh, been through the scriptures, but the idea is that we are just in the word of God on a frequent basis. And why? Because Colossians tells us, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Have a grasp of scripture uh, and know what scripture is. You know, as I've read through the Bible many times in, in my personal life, um, I found out some things that I thought were not in scripture uh, or were in Scripture, are not in Scripture, okay? Um, I remember one of the first things that, uh, that I had discovered was that, uh, you know, I thought uh, it was a proverb, and it wasn't until I went specifically going, going to look for it that I realized it's not in Scripture. Um, the, the, what I thought was a proverb from, from the Bible uh, was a fool and his money is soon what? Parted. Yeah, fool and his money is soon parted. I thought, well, Solomon must have said that, right? And uh, looking, and guess what? It's not in there. You know where it is from? Poor Richard's Almanac, Benjamin Franklin, okay? And he was not one of the writers of Scripture. How many have ever heard that God will forget your sin and throw them in the sea of his forgetfulness? How many have ever heard that? Oh, my goodness. I thought there'd be all the crowd here. Um, we've probably heard something like that. God will uh, forget your sin and throw them in the sea. You know what? That's not in Scripture either. That is not Bible. And it's very anti-Bible, if you will. God doesn't forget anything, number one. He doesn't forget your sin. You know what grace is? Grace is knowing exactly what you did wrong 
and never bringing it up. <laughs> God doesn't forget anything. He's omniscient, right? He knows exactly everything there is to know, and he can't forget. I'm grateful for that, actually. Um, you know, I've been forgotten. Uh, maybe you've been forgotten, but God never forgets. And, uh, and there is no sea of forgetfulness. It's not in the Bible. Somebody made that up and it made it sound real good, but it's not part of Scripture. And so uh, let's go back to Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and here's the results, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns. So here's, here's the, um, uh, you know, the part of our understanding. You know, we'll, we'll sing in the understanding, but also... Uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, songs in the Spirit, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So again, the instruction of Scripture is uh, guided by truth. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly, all right? Guided by truth. We're to uh, teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So tongues is the worship gift. It's the prayer and worship gift. Uh, with tongues, we, we can pray in the Spirit, and we can sing in the Spirit. Uh, with tongues, we worship through prayer, singing, as Paul instructs us, that we pray with our, our understanding, and we pray and sing in the Spirit. In doing so, we fulfill what Jesus spoke when we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the thing that will guide us in keeping us getting out in the weeds is the fact that we, we have the Word of God in us, and we are we are in it uh, many times. Rick Warren wrote this um, in one of the books that he wrote. He said, worship must be based on the truth of Scripture, not our opinions about God. We cannot just create our own comfortable or politically correct image of God and worship it. That is idolatry. So understand, we cannot create God after our image we are created in his image and we worship him, not the other way around. And so it's important for us to be guided that way. Now here's a, a point I thought would be really important as well, you know, especially when we come to the house of God to worship. That's one of the reasons why we, we are here is to worship. And, and what we're doing right now, listening hopefully to the word of God, uh, is an act of worship as well. Don't relegate worship to just the, the music and the songs. Um, worship is, is hearing the word of God as well. It's our devotion to him. And, uh, and so um, one of the things that can block or hinder our ability to worship is offense. Now, I don't know about you, I sense a lot of offense in the world today. <laughs> Inside the church, outside the church, offense is the spirit of the age we live in. You know, the church is no exception to that trend. Uh, you know, we're offended inside, outside our circles of faith. Uh, it's the devil's strategy to promote this. And the spirit-filled disciple must be aware of the spiritual warfare that is constantly going on around us. And he seeks to just distract us, to get us off track by things like offense, in seeking to nullify our relationship with God. John, uh, in the epistles, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, reminds us of this important truth. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he 
is a liar. I can't sugarcoat that for you, okay? I can't just, you know, say that, you know, this isn't a problem. It is a problem. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And, and so John calls this out for us and, uh, and say, hey, there's, there's a problem here. Jesus as well addresses this issue. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 23 and 24, Jesus says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, which is an act of worship, okay, bringing our gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So do you see the priorities here? Is God doesn't want gifts uh, in, in hypocrisy. It's like, oh, I love you, God, but you know, I really can't stand that guy. God doesn't want that kind of worship. God doesn't want that kind of offering of worship uh, to him. He wants all of those things reconciled within us. You know, sometimes when we are offended and our feelings are hurt, we feel justified in not forgiving. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but uh, I think all of us, have experienced the reluctance to let go of offense and all the while coming to church and think we can just worship God in spirit and truth. It, it's blocked. It is hindered. Uh, it crimps our ability to fulfill what Jesus uh, said the Father is looking for. Well, let's wrap this up here uh, quickly. Worship then for the spirit-filled uh, disciple is important for us. I don't know if you think about heaven often, but, you know, I, I think about heaven, what it's going to be like, and, and the scripture gives us, you know, glimpses here and there. There's some things, you know, you can go to Revelation 21, Revelation 22, and there's so many beautiful descriptions of our eternal abode uh, that we often just kind of call heaven. But there's some notable things that are missing in those descriptions. So, you know, it talks about, you know, the the gates uh, of pearl and the streets of gold and, the, and all of these incredible descriptions, but you'll never find in heaven a description of a church. Okay, there's no first assembly of God of heaven, all right? There is no church. And you know what? When we get to heaven, there, there'll be no more praying. You know what the best things about heaven? When you get to heaven, there's no more sermons. Don't act too excited about that, Okay. I'll take offense at that. Um, just kidding. <laughs> no, there's so many things that we do here and now that are not going to be needed in heaven. But you know what heaven is full of? Is worship. <laughs> it's a continuation from this life to the next. Let me read you uh, out of Revelation 5. John the Revelator here is writing what he's seeing, which is the, is the raptured church in heaven, and he is invited in to see what is going on. Now, it's a little longer passage here, so hang in there. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8 through 14, and here's what John sees. Speaking of Jesus here, he says, Now when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now the four living creatures said, Amen. And 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. I tell you, if that doesn't thrill you to your soul, your thriller is busted. Okay. <laughs> it's a picture of the worship that goes on unending in heaven. I don't know what your idea of heaven is, you know, if you think, you know, heaven's going to be, you know, kind of fluttering around on angel's wings and playing a harp and sitting on clouds. You can go to that heaven. I'm not going to be there, okay? I'm going to go here, (laughs) what John observed, and that will be our experience for eternity in worshiping God. So worship is not an unimportant subject. It is vital to the Christian believer.